All right. Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making other people healthier in the world. Pop health, right? Lots of different definitions. All in all, we explore all the different dimensions of what it takes to make a population healthier. What are the differences that make a difference in this um, in this world? And we get passionate people, passionate leaders like Kevin on the show. So Dr. Kevin Ban is our guest today. I'm really enthused to have him on. Dr. Ban is the chief medical officer with Athena Health. And I'm not going to steal his thunder, but he's going to tell us about what he's been up to, what he's passionate about, and his origin story. Um, Dr. Ban, thank you so much for being on the show, and, and welcome. Hey, Anthony. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And by all means, please call me Kevin. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. So, so Kevin, take us back. Transport us. Tele- teleport us back to either a refining moment, a defining moment, or a refining series of steps, or maybe a defining moment that have led you to kind of commit your life, your career to, to health. Um, tell us your origin story. You know what? I'll spare you the story that I was born in Ohio, and I will fast forward to uh, an experience I had in high school where um, I was an exchange student to Costa Rica during the summer between my junior and senior year in high school sort of on my way to play basketball and all of a sudden the world was open to me uh, by that experience and um, and during my senior year in high school uh, instead of going off to college to play basketball I made a decision to go to Italy to be an exchange student and do a year program and um, you know it's interesting how you can only really put your life together in retrospect uh, but that ended up being a a really important event in my life um, because later uh, while I was doing my residency, uh, I met uh, a woman who became my girlfriend and now my wife, who's from Florence, Italy. And uh, that um, led to her father, who's a, who at the time was the chairman of surgery at the University of Florence, and conversations first with him about the delivery of care, and then with the dean of the medical school, and then ultimately with the minister of health of Tuscany, And that led to an eight-year collaboration between Harvard Medical Faculty physicians and the Tuscan government at the University of Florence, Pisa, and Siena. So it was like one of those, like, you know, life-altering events. And and I'll kind of cap it up by saying that, uh, or cap it off by saying uh, that, you know, I went over there to work on a bunch of projects. Um, We started with emergency medicine education at the three universities and then uh, for the 900 emergency physicians working in their system. But we got into quality of care type issues. We got into translational research. And we later developed a pediatric trauma center, which was the first of its kind um, in Italy and, and located in Florence. And um, and it's one of the things where I came back and, and, you know, it's kind of a platitude to say, and I realized I learned more than, than I ever taught anyone, but it ended up without question being true. Um, I came back. And I got in very quickly into the world of value-based care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. We were in the Pioneer ACO program, and I started to get involved with that. And things that we used to sort of make fun of and maybe criticize when we were uh, in in Italy were things that, um, as we started to redesign care, were things that we started to do. So that is kind of like the origin of of how I got into uh, value-based care. About three and a half years ago, I joined Athena Health to help them, you know, expand the population health services. Uh, but that that it was by way of uh, meeting an Italian woman after being an exchange student in Italy. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> no, that's that's that. This is awesome. Yeah, no, really, really appreciate you know your background and the blend of of what you're doing, um, and on the medical side, um, uh, Kevin, tell me. Um, along those lines, I guess, tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the things you're mentioning here or in, in, in the current space of health. So broad, lots of cool topics, lots of cool things you're touching, lots of things you're seeing at Athena, things you've seen just from, you know, you're, you're, you know, leading in the, in the medical industry. Tell me a little bit about something you're really passionate about and has your fixation or, you know, you're really fascinated by today. I just love to love to hear and listen a little bit more to your passion, um, you know, in the space. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I certainly through my work at Athena now, I get exposure to a lot of different, um, aspects really of healthcare. And one of the things that has been resonating more loudly, uh, has been the whole concept of a physician burnout. Right. And I think you've, you've touched on that in some of your previous episodes, mm-hmm. but that's something that like, I just, you know, you cannot be a chief medical officer at an electronic health record company and not think about, about burnout. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I kind of felt like, you know, I wanted to do a, a, a more of a deep dive in trying to understand it and then, you know, then try to do something about it uh, in my role at Athena. And, you know, one of the things that has really resonated with me was something that I read uh, last summer in July of 2018. It was an article that was written uh, by a woman, um, Wendy Dean, uh, who's a psychiatrist down in D.C. and has worked at the Department of Defense. And, um, and then Simon Talbot, who is a plastic surgeon working here in Boston uh, at, at Brigham. And, and they wrote an article uh, and they said, look, it's, it's not burnout. It's potentially something called moral injury. And are you familiar with that concept, Anthony? Have you a little kind of worked bit, with moral a injury? little bit, but not in depth? Yeah, I'm very, very fascinated to learn more. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so their concept was um, essentially adopted from the Department of Defense, and and was some work that had been done with returning vets. And the concept was that not all of the vets returning uh, from from uh, service overseas are returning with PTSD. The concept is that some of them are returning with something that they they call moral injury, and that mm-hmm. is that people who are like morally good, people who want to do the right thing, so much so that they join the military and then go overseas to fight what they believe to be the good battle, um, are injured uh, because morally it's at odds with, um, with what their actual experience is in country, mm-hmm. and and so they it's it's sort of something referred to as a double bind, where like you're sort of obligated by uh, your job or, you know, the work that you're doing to do a certain thing, but that may be at odds with your point of view as, as, as a soldier in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, this was adopted by, by Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot um, to medicine. And, and the concept being that, you know, we go to medical, you know, let's not even mention the college part of it, but you go to medical school and then residency, you go into a about a 10-year black hole where it's a ton of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, you're giving up your time, your energy, your money, uh, you're giving up your relations frequently and, and um, your relationships and, mm-hmm. and you come out of it and, and you want to do the right thing. And then you kind of come into our healthcare system, which is uh, broken. And we talk about this all the time. And you're not able to do the things that you want to do uh, to, to help your patients. And, and this results in uh, moral injury, which is a bucket for 
uh, are a cause of physician burnout. And so mm-hmm. if people have, have seen me say, look, you could get rid of the electronic health record tomorrow and still suffer from moral injury, it's because of, of, of that bigger concept that this is not mm-hmm. a necessarily a problem uh, of the electronic health record, although I want to address that specifically, um, but a problem of our system. And, and, and the way I look at this and, and where I've landed on it is when you're working in a fee-for-service model uh, and those are the rules of the game, in a system that is as heavily regulated as ours is, uh, then you have a situation where the electronic health record ends up being, you know, uh, something that's very transactional. It's meant to help facilitate revenue cycle management uh, and then serves the purpose of compliance for quality programs that we know don't measure the quality of the care that we provide. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, something that, uh, you know, has a legacy in rev cycle, in compliance, now all of a sudden we have higher expectations, right? We're like, no, we want this to help the physician be more effective, more efficient. Heck, we would even like for this to drive better patient outcomes and keep them safe, right? And so there's this tension because we feel like we're clicking, you know, the average emergency physician clicks like 4,000 times per shift. Mm. We're clicking, clicking, and clicking, and we're doing nothing for our patients, right? Right. So, so, um, so I've gotten really interested in this concept. Um, I've kind of married it with another concept, which is, I've gotten to know um, a guy by the name of of uh, Len Schlesinger, uh, mm-hmm. who's a professor at at Harvard Business School. He's become a friend and really a mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And 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 Len Len's work has largely been around um, the concept of capability. And so, like, I'll try to kind of you know put that together pretty quickly. The concept being that the the role of the employer is to make sure that the employees are capable. And he defines capability as that they have the resources that they need for their job, the tools, frequently technology, and then the autonomy to make the decision. So those those three things. Len is like, look, as an employer, you should make sure that your employees have the resources, the tools, and the autonomy to make decisions. And when you do that, a couple of things happen. Number one, they're much more likely to be engaged in what they're doing. Number two, they're much more likely to be productive because they can get their job done. Number three, that leads to a certain amount of loyalty, and and which is enormous, right? Sort of retention of your employees is a huge concept. Um, and, and all of this comes together into just driving better outcomes for the, the work that you're doing. And Len started to wonder, hey, I wonder if this is applicable to healthcare. And he and I started working together around this. And more and more, I believe that, you know, the ultimate fix, like the big fix, if you want to, if you, if you believe in the concept of moral injury mm-hmm. is enormous policy change, right? Like if you really believe that this is the problem and I do, mm-hmm. then the fix, then the fix is something like massive. Like you need to change the way that we pay for healthcare. And there's a lot of conversation in this country about that. But I'm just concerned that there's not the political wherewithal right now to make that happen in a timely fashion. I mm-hmm. think that is going to happen. I think more and more, especially sort of millennials and down, believe that healthcare is definitely a right and not a privilege. But right now, politically, it doesn't feel like that's going to change in the short term. And and then the second thing is like we're you know the, these the regulation isn't going to change much. Certainly not going to change now in this administration. 
And that's going to take time. So I kind of feel like, like directionally, that's the right thing to do. But what do we do for people right now? Like, what do we do for the people who are trying to do their best to take care of patients uh, and find that they're like in this, you know, no can do situation? And I think it's to make them more capable now using lens, uh, you know, language. And, and for me, you know, the only place I ever saw that happen is when we changed how we pay, paid for care. Uh, and mm-hmm. that was through value-based care. Um, and, and we kind of got away from fee for service. So like there are different ways to do that, right? Just either that you're like doing value-based care in a real way. I'd be happy to come back to what I mean by a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, so comp- companies like Caremore, uh, Chen Med, Iora Health, Oak Street mm-hmm. Health, Kaiser, the big one, like, you know, that's like real value-based care. Like that's one right. way to do it. Right. You can get into direct, direct to primary care. Um, you can get into self-insured and the self-insured employer space. So what you're fundamentally doing is you're changing the way that you're paying for care. And, and subsequently, you can redesign it such that it makes sense to the people who are involved. But not everyone can do that. And, and so I want to be more practical and be like, okay, let's say you can't make that move for whatever reason. You don't want to or you don't have the opportunity somehow. Uh, then what do you do in a fee-for-service world? And and this is my plea to leaders um, to really give some thought to making the people who are taking care of patients, the people who are on the front lines of care, capable. And um, if you'd like, we can go deeper into what I mean by that. Uh, but, you know, when you do that, like there is gr- what we found at Athena, because we've done a, a fair amount of research around this, is that when you do that, when you help the folks who are taking care of patients be more capable of their job, you know, they are two times, uh, you know, happier. Uh, Mm -hmm. They are more, they are more productive. They are less likely to leave. And so, you you know, that it all comes together into something that makes perfect sense. Right. But it requires, but it requires leadership. Right. And, um, and that's another thing that we found in our research is that like, Hey, look, um, if, if you're a leader who really cares and you go and you connect with the people who are taking care of patients and you listen to them in a real authentic way, right? Mm-hmm. Like a real type of listening, like I'm going to listen, understand and act. And then you do something, right? Like it doesn't have to be a home run. It doesn't have to be a complete fix, but you do something uh, that can have a tremendous impact on how uh, those physicians feel uh, and, and will reduce uh, will reduce burnout. So the bottom line is, if you're a leader, uh, you ought to be tightly connected to the people at the front lines. Um, and and if and when you do that, you don't have to hit it out of the park, as I said. But you will you will see that people will respond. And despite knowing that, uh, less than a third of leaders in our research actually do that in an authentic way. So so I think I think uh, uh, that's a point I'd like to make at least based on the stuff that we're finding at Athena. I love it. No, um, Kevin, um, super fascinating, right? Lots of pieces here between um, moral injury, burnout. You've got the political side, or I guess let's just call it, you know, like the regulatory side moving towards value base. So kind of like the the macro side, which is being addressed, you know, we need stamina, right? To withhold ourselves. We know it's going to happen. We're inching towards it. Mechanisms are, are getting there. There's the managerial side, like you're mentioning, you know, and, and, and making sure people have the resources. 
what about you know so so macro managerial but the me part like so say like there is a doctor that's about to walk into your office and it is very clear that they've experienced moral injury what are like one or two like action steps you would have for that specific physician to not necessarily just rectify but kind of deal with and make sure that they don't become you know burnt out and like quit because we need these great physicians that you know that moral initial moral compass right to, to you know we need them to stay in the system so wh what advice would you have for someone or like even a listener that that may have have faced that you know i'm just kind of curious yeah um nice no, uh, great question um yeah when i'm asked this question uh i generally refer to something clinical uh like a mm -hmm. cough okay mm -hmm. and it's like wh what do we do when when someone um presents with a cough Mm -hmm. And and the answer is we tried to uh, quickly get to a diagnosis. So that cough might be the result of uh, a viral bronchitis or a bacterial pneumonia. Uh, that cough may be actually from uh, GERD, you know, uh, reflux disease. Right. That cough may, may be a lung nodule, so a lung cancer. So the first thing we do is we actually try to, in a very... Um, um, specific way, go through a process to discern the, the, what's causing the cough. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be infinitely absurd for us to treat lung cancer with antibiotics. And right. yet this is exactly what we do in burnout, right? Mm. So, um, so look, if uh, what I, what we try to do in general is try to understand what is the cause of the physician's burnout. You know, if, first of all, is it burnout? Uh, and then secondly, what's the cause of it? And, and then you can act. So, you know, there's there's physician impairment. Uh, there's the stressed out, overworked physician. And then there are the physicians who are morally injured. Right. And 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 they have all different flavors. So one of the things uh, and we do work with our clients around this and then um, more and more with with folks even outside um, who who are trying to understand, like, what is the cause of this? And that's why. You know, for a person who, let's say now that we're using this language, is morally injured, uh, you know, a yoga class is not helpful. It, it, not only is it not helpful, it's actually harmful in the sense that you're right. losing credibility, right? Right. So, right. So, so my answer to you would be step one, make the diagnosis and try to get a sense of what's causing this so that you mm -hmm. can act on it, okay? And, and so, for example, for me, you know, a guy who... Uh, who the only class he almost ever failed in high school was typing. Back mm -hmm. when, by the way, Anthony, we used to have to take typing class. <laughs> um, uh, but then didn't fail because I was sort of on my way maybe to the Naval Academy and the guy who ran the class really had respect for that and so I didn't fail. A terrible reason, I guess, not to fail a class. Maybe I should have <laughs> failed the class because maybe then now I could type. But you're talking to one of the, you're, you're talking to a guy who cannot type. Okay. And I'm going to guess that a lot of the right. physicians maybe listening to this podcast are not good typists. Okay. But neither did we go into medicine mm -hmm. because we mm -hmm. thought we ought to be good typists. Right. So there's stuff that you can do. Like now I'm talking mm -hmm. specifically about the electronic health record. Right. So those folks who are struggling with the electronic health record, um, you know, then I would try to come up with solutions for that. There's all sorts of optimization, all sorts of different things that you can do. What I personally did, um, was hired a scribe. You know, I was in that group, you know, at Beth Israel when, when they were like, hey, we want to try the scri scribe program just based on who I am. I was like, you know, hand up, I'll be in the alpha group. 
And it was for me somewhat transformative um, because I went from spending two to three hours uh, after every shift documenting to like finish it, finishing my shift mostly on time uh, and, and just being able to kind of go home. Okay. Now that's really important. What I just said, two or three hours of documentation after my shift. Okay. So that, that's going to, mm, that, that's, mm. I want, I want to make a point. So what happened? I, I, you know, I do the alpha program. Um, I find that all of a sudden I'm not spending any time documenting. I'm spending all of my time talking to my patients, their families, the paramedics. I'm spending time uh, talking to the nurses about the care of the patient and teaching the residents. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of like doing deep dives into the electronic health record for things uh, that I need to know, previous labs, old notes, whatever it is. So I'm doing all the things that are like, forgive me for this term, at the top of my license. Okay. So wonderful. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, helped me enjoy uh, what I was doing a lot more. Now the alpha period's over, right? Like the alpha program's over. And it's like, okay, for you guys that want to continue on Scribe, it's 20 bucks an hour. So eight hour shift, 20 bucks an hour. You know, I do, I did as an academic doctor around 10 shifts on average a month. You know, all of a sudden you're up to around $1,500, $1,600 a month out of my P&L to pay for the Scribe, right? And now all of a sudden you're kind of like, mm-hmm. whoa. Oh, you know, like that's, that's serious money. Okay. And, and so now you have to decide, you know, do I want to spend that money? Um, or do I want to spend two to three hours? And that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and, and what we're seeing is there's technology now that's beginning to fill that space. You know, I'll just mention this at Athena. Um, there is, uh, um, an MDP partner, more disruption, please. That's our marketplace called Suki right. and Suki right. will do that type of work. Right. And, and they do it at a, a fraction of the right. expense, maybe a third of the number I just quoted you. So like, I think, right. uh, again, I think it matters that you understand what's getting in your physician's way. Uh, and then you try to help them. Um, and like I said, if you may not be able to get a perfect fix on ed- everything, but if you try to do something, um, then, then that'll be meaningful. I'll, I'll give you another example. I think inboxes kill physicians. Um, I think that a lot of physicians are like, why am I dealing with all of this crazy noise administrivia? Can't someone else do this? And and the answer is yes. Right? So there are different ways to do that. But Mm -hmm. I I think that we should be giving a lot of very serious thought to the type of work that doctors are doing and nurses are doing and medical assistants are doing and, and front office staff are doing. So that you kind of push people that that doesn't all fall on on someone who's really not the best person to do it, right? So, so again, I kind of you know talked about a bunch of different things here, but get a sense for what's going on. Uh, you want to do that sort of at a, maybe you know a system group and right down to the individual level, and then try to take steps uh, to to uh, mitigate that. Uh, by true partnership with those people to do something that's going to be meaningful. And again, I'll just kind of repeat myself because if you do something mm-hmm. that's easy, like a, a wellness day or you do like yoga periodically, it just doesn't resonate with people. Right. And, um, right. And, and I think does harm. I love it. I love it, Kevin. Um, and really great examples. And yeah, I'm very familiar with the company uh, that you mentioned. And uh, yeah, kudos. You guys are doing some, some awesome stuff with the MDP program. Uh, really, really fascinating. You know, like Foundry and like Conveyor Belt of Innovation, you guys have there. 
Um, I guess along those lines, you know, so thank you for the example, very prescriptive, very like bite-sized, take it away, punchy, you know, any physician that just listened to that, I think it's, it's, it's super. So thank you for providing a framework. I don't think anyone on this planet has properly done that. Maybe some people have, um, but, uh, hopefully we can highlight a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more along those lines about the future, right? So you're hinting up upon some things that could kind of reduce waste, take away like this non-value added stuff from like that physician so we can focus on the patient more. But I guess, tell me a little bit more about what's the vision, what's the future of healthcare according to Kevin? <laughs> All right. So um, I have, I'm one of those guys who has drunk the Kool-Aid around value-based care. Having right. said that, um, I want to qualify that. Uh, I am concerned that uh, the true intention of value-based care uh, um, is lost when it is um, when the point of view is that this is an opportunity to gain market share. Okay, right. so this is the cynical side of me coming out, but but I am concerned about organizations that decide to get into the value-based care space, the pop health space, and their true intention is really that they're trying to gain market share. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not consider programs that are really upside only to be true, true risk, right? Risk means that you risk something and MSSP upside only, you know, okay. So I don't get the bonus at the end of the year, but you know what, in the interim with all those attributed lives, I was able to keep heads in the beds. I was keeping my operating room full rooms full and I was churning and burning on my CT scan and MRI. Right. And so I didn't get the, 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 the little kicker, you know, almost a year later, who cares? Okay, for me, uh, that is a major problem. I feel like popular this concept of value-based care and population health management is like a lily pad towards something that we're headed towards. Okay, but it is not the thing. Right. Um, having said that, having said that, uh, when there is true risk, and you sort of trust that these organizations will figure it out, then when there's true risk, uh, then you see care redesign, right? And now right. all of a sudden, the concept of making sure that the doctor, the nurse, the medical assistant, everyone else on the team, the pharmacist, the health coach, the dietitian yes, I'm saying all these things, mm-hmm. are all doing what they ought to be doing uh, is the moment where we kind of fix it. Because the bottom line is, uh, you know, we, we are in a place and probably this, is a little bit speaks to the experience that I had working in Tuscany. You know, we are a place that tends to focus very much on the care component of healthcare and very much less so the health component of healthcare, right? And so we've all heard this report before. People want less care, they want more health. Yeah, but when your payment model is aligned such that the only way that you can continue to make margin and therefore continue to carry on your mission is through volume, then you just really can't invest in those things that probably matter most, right? Which are right. things like, hey, look, medical care is a component by all means, but equally important is diet, fitness, sleep, stress mitigation, social well-being, all these things, right? right? These things matter. But if you're not getting paid for them, they don't happen, okay? Right. So what am I excited about? I am excited about the concept that we can move definitively to a place where we pay for outcomes and therefore are able to redesign care and therefore can keep people doing what they ought to be doing 
and can focus on the thing and drive the thing that matters most, which is helping helping people to get healthy. Okay, and not a model that you know drives a certain type of of dependence upon the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and is there anything getting in the way of that vision that you think that? And at what level? I think you mentioned a little bit, you know, kind of like policy change and, and kind of some macro elements here. But um, do you feel we're organically going there, or is there any like one, two, or three things that you still feel need to happen, and someone needs to take the lead in the charge on the, on them to, you know, to march us towards this? Like, because uh, what you're saying we, here, like the physics of it, right, makes sense. Like once you have that that risk on the table, you know, things organically will will actually align, right? But I, I guess to get out of our own ways as it as uh, as we do this, like not just like healthcare shift, it's like a societal shift, right? Mindset shift in this huge, you know, spot that's occupying a fifth of our GDP, right, in the U.S. here. But what's what else needs yeah. to change to reach that vision? Well, I'm, I'm going to pick up on that right there, and I want to be very practical about this because I'm right. not comfortable. Right. I'm, I'm not comfortable saying like, oh, all we have to do is all, you know, move to our single payer model and <laughs> right, it'll be, right. it, 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 it'll be utopia. Like that right. is, uh, your, your listeners will, would rightfully stop listening at that moment. Right. 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 So look, you, you said it, right. Um, we're, we're, we're at like 18%, maybe 20, you know, 20% of the GDP. You know, another way to think about that though is, um, you know, I read somewhere and, and if I get this wrong, everyone listening forgive me, uh, mm-hmm. but that that 33 states have as their leading industry healthcare. I think this comes after like real estate is number one everywhere, but then like after that, like healthcare. And then in the 17 right. remaining states, it's like number two or three. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, another way to look at 18% beyond expense is like, you know, a lot of people pay their mortgages, feed their children, save for college because of healthcare. Okay. So I'm sort of like practical enough, curmudgeonly enough or jaded enough to know that this will not be an event. This will be a process. It will not be a fast process because, you know, I'm going to guess that like a hundred percent of the people on this phone call pay their bills, their mortgage and the food, their food. And, And maybe the same percentage of the folks listening through healthcare, okay? So like none of us, I, I am not convinced that we all want like a change tomorrow. Right. But I think we all believe that a change is necessary, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's here's the, here's the like, okay, uh, hope for the future. Mm-hmm. I believe that more and more our politics uh, will support that type of change. I do not believe that that's the case in the next three to five years. I think it's more like 10 to 15 years. Okay? But yeah. I believe progressively, uh, we will see more acceptance of this type of concept. And so all of these models that we're building right now are terribly important to realize the new world. It's just that the new world's not tomorrow. Okay, The right. new world is coming, uh, but it's not tomorrow. Right. Uh, and, and, and for the reasons that I mentioned. I'm, I'm actually... Hopeful. I'm actually pleased that we're having these really intense conversations. I'm really glad that people now talk about social determinants of health. It's something we never talked about, right? Right. And and so, like, you know, while I didn't want to go there today because I know you've gone there before, it's like, 
you know, even just like being woke to that matters, right? And right. that is about how change actually happens. So, so my thing is like, look, the revolution needs to start now. And I actually want to be a part of it. And the reason in part that I accepted when you kind of pinged me and were like, hey, man, would you consider being on this podcast? Right. It's like, yeah, this is another opportunity to talk to a like-minded person uh, to maybe uh, reach a broader audience and get people talking about this. Like, I want to be a part of this revolution. Right. Like, I want to be connected to like-minded people who think it matters. And then we will figure out, you know, sort of just by, you know, trial and error how we get there. But again, right. we never had this conversation before. And now all of a sudden we're having it. Everyone is exceptionally disappointed for the speed or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. But hey, it's happening, right? And it's not going to be an event, as I mentioned. It's going to be incremental. It's going to be iterative. It's going to be progressive. Uh, but it's happening. So that's, that's yeah. kind of what keeps me going, right? And that's the yeah. reason why I keep fighting the good fight. You know, 10 to 15 years is not that long if you think about it, right? I mean, it right. The, I, it feels like the iPhone just came out. iPhone came out like 10 years ago, right? And... Um, I, it's just uh, it's just great to have you know leaders and, and people that are passionate like you you know that are leading to charge or willing to talk about this stuff and you know obviously you know we become our words we be as a society right we become our words we become our thoughts right and you know eventually these mechanisms are going to converge the leaders that are managing whether it's on the health IT side the, the value-based side the administrative side the care side you know, all these pieces are going to come together and make more sense. And yeah, I'm right there with you too on the 18%, right? For the, the US GDP if, if, on healthcare, if that's right, you know. My viewpoint too is like, hey, if you could switch that 18% and just have it not just be healthcare focused, but, you know, it's 18% of our US GDP on well-being. Oh my gosh, what a divestiture, right? <laughs> I mean, you have a society <laughs> that is full of super soldiers very quickly, right? I mean, just really like pushing humanity forward. Um, is my thoughts, but um, now it's an exciting you'd like, future. You'd have like Denmark. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the world of Denmark. I mean, that'd be cool. Um, no, it's it's good though. But you know, the net net, right? That's a lot of that's a lot of people changed. It's a lot of people are changing for the better, health wise, as we speak. And what's fascinating is like that's that's going to start compounding, yeah, in the next five years, ten years, fifteen years, and so. Um, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I mean, you probably are like me, you wake up in the morning and you're like, I love what I do. I, I, I really don't want to do anything else in the world. There's probably a lot more easier things to do, but there are not as many fulfilling things to do like this. I mean, you're, you're changing people's lives. Like every time you type on your keyboard, right, Kevin, right? You're whether you, I'm sure you may not realize it to the extent, but every single time you type or tap on your phone these days right that's the net net of a change live is like probably like every <laughs> 20 words you type you're gonna you're gonna affect probably twenty thousand lives right so we got a big obligation no pressure hashtag no pressure right but um but uh <laughs> all kidding aside but uh kevin this is great a couple things i want to be sensitive to your schedule today so that you can impact you know an additional hundred thousand people today but um uh, I guess, first of all, I'd love to have you back on the show. Even though we talked about SCOH and social determinants, it would be cool to have you back just to go deeper on this and see what, just to sure. see from your perspective, like what you've been seeing, right? Athena see so much stuff. You're exposed to so much stuff. It would be cool to go deeper. There's there's not enough, I think, combo happening in that area. Um, and then uh, thank you for, first of all, you know, unleashing to us this this 
uh, this topic, this new like body of knowledge on moral injury. It's relative to everyone on this planet. And I've never heard it in a really interesting context. You've given me a, a really good thought to go into the weekend here um, to think about and just self-reflect personally too. Um, but uh, Kevin, anyway, love speaking to you. Love this weekend jam out all day. I guess for our listeners out there, what would be a good way to connect with you if, if people would like to do so? You know what? Um, I'll just give you my uh, my email. I think probably I, I, I'm a church and state type of guy, and right, right, so right, I right. think I'd, I I, I kind of keep my work separate from my personal email. Totally. Uh, my personal email um, you can do Kevin dot M dot Van at Gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so again, it's just Kevin dot M. Uh, which stands for Michael dot ban b a n at gmail dot com. You know, shoot me, shoot me a uh, an email, and um, and then you know, uh, power to the people. Keep going, like keep our heads yeah. up. You know, I have you, you know, like you know, I wake up every day, and there are moments where you know I can be frustrated, but then I I you know get connected to people like you, Anthony, and I suspect the people listening to this podcast are kind of like you know what not only can we do better, but we like have to do better. And, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and therefore it is our job to be, to be as giant as we can be so that others can come after and get this thing right. And so we just keep going uh, and we just figure out how to start the revolution and, and just get people on board. That's my take. So great. So great, Kevin. Kevin, thank you so much. This was, this was awesome. This was great. And uh, thank you for sharing your story, your passions, your vision of healthcare, and uh, love to have you back. We can we can go deeper. We should go deeper. We need to go deeper, right? So, uh, Kevin, thanks again. Uh, and to I'd love to our listeners out there. This is the Pop Health Show. This is for people with a strong passion for health and that are really taking a deliberate stand for population health and pop health out there and uh, deciphering it, talking about it, and uh, executing upon it. So. Kevin, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Thanks. Be good. Thanks.